0: Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 15 and going to verse 34, stand with me as we read the word of the Lord uh, together this morning. You know, one of the delights that uh, I have when I preach is when I ask you to turn to your Bibles is to hear your pages turning. Another delight is to see so many of you with your Bibles. That is so encouraging. If you don't have a Bible, we have them under the seats, and you're welcome to take one of those and to use that, but um, good on you all for bringing your word uh, with you. Verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus stopped them, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it then said, Well, who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who have left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was being said. Father, we come before you this morning and thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that your word has been woven through our singing and through our praying. Thank you that our actions have reflected your word as we have given in obedience to what you have said. And now, Father, we get to gather around your word as you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you for this incredible gift. Thank you for those people that um, are here that, that have so appreciated your gift of the word to them. And on this, which is a Reformation Sunday, a day when we do recall in church history the gift of your word to us and the gift of salvation that comes through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, we thank you that we can gather with your word. I pray that as we go through this text now this morning, that you would show us Christ, that you would make this word live, that you would speak to our hearts, we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're continuing in the book of Luke, and we have uh, been just looking at life from a different perspective from a number of passages in the book, and this is our third uh, uh, foray into Luke. And as we consider life uh, today from a different perspective, we are considering the topic of salvation. It begins with a question that we're going to be considering. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a fascinating question, and it's one that Luke has dealt with before. And we're a little bit backwards, but in about three weeks, we'll come back to the first time it's been asked. And it was asked in Luke chapter 10. As well, there a lawyer came to Jesus after he'd been speaking with some children, and to test Jesus, he said to him, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in that context, Jesus told him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here, we find a man, very quickly, uh, that he's a wealthy man, we find out, comes to Jesus with the same question. Again, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Both times, in both of those settings, in Luke chapter 10 and here in Luke chapter 18, Jesus drives them back to the Ten Commandments. Just a side note, that's the value of understanding the Ten Commandments and their place in the Christian life. In the first instance, or both instances also, the context of is children or little ones before the Lord. In Luke chapter 10, which we'll look at, Jesus has just been talking to his disciples, and he says that you need to come to me with a childlike faith. And right in response, the man says then, what must I do to inherit eternal life? They were wise and intelligent men, but God had not revealed those things to them pertaining to eternal life, because they did not have a childlike faith. Here in this context, and I read it just so that you understood, the disciples had been bringing, or people had been bringing children to Jesus. And the disciples had been fretting and worrying and and saying, you know, get these kids away. We don't want Jesus to be bothered by these children. And Jesus' response to them was that we we need to have, uh, that children are those that come to him for eternal life. Or that, blessed, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it again. That we need to have a childlike faith in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And right in step with that, Jesus had no longer said that, or no sooner said that, when the ruler says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What Jesus had spoken about being a child with childlike faith had just gone right over his head. We don't know who this ruler is. Uh, the, the, The Bible just uses the word ruler. And and uh, it's found in Mark and in found in Matthew as well, this story. It could be a reference to a leading citizen in the community, a high official, somebody who had a lot of authority and a great deal of money. Or it could be a reference to a ruler of a local synagogue. There's the account of Jarius in Luke chapter eight thirty one, who his daughter became ill, and he was the ruler of a local synagogue. I tend to think that there was likely a, a ruler in that sense that it, we're talking about in this particular sense. or or situation, but it doesn't make it clear, so it could be either. In either way, what was going on here was he had the wrong view of salvation. He was thinking the wrong way about salvation. His question to Jesus was simply this, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He'd been watching Jesus. He had been watching him interact with the crowd. He had been listening to him. And I suspect that he thought he was a pretty good guy and he had things uh, figured out. And so he, he wanted to know, what do I have to do in order to have life everlasting? Or put another way, what must I do to be saved? Let's deal with the eternal life part first, because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that is the promise of living forever. That's what we mean when we think of eternal life. It's, it's something that I think every single human being that has ever been born, that has uh, an ability of cognition, thinks about this question. We all want to know about life after death. It's been the history of our world. Uh, You can go and you can uh, pick out from uh, most libraries that are well-stocked the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as they give instructions about how you communicate with the dead and how you prepare for the life after death. Some of you have been to Egypt and you've walked through the pyramids. And what are the pyramids? But burial places for those that were anticipating the entrance into life after death. And so they had provisions around them. They had stuff on the walls. They had stuff that would help them make that transition from this life to the life to come. Reincarnation is big. And it's still part of our culture and part of our society that people think, well, when I die, it's not the end of stuff. I come back as someone else or something else. There's something in us that, that drives us to realize that there must be more than just this life. I've been a little bit dismayed by the amount of commercials on TV for the New York medium. And it bothers me that people are, are so fascinated by this stuff, because in, in a sense, what, what, what she is doing is she's communicating with the dead. And so at least those people are believing that there's life after death, because somehow those dead loved ones are still in existence. And just as a side note, dear ones, the Bible is very clear. We are to have nothing to do with communication with the dead, period. It's not because it doesn't work, and it's not because the dead aren't in existence. It's because we don't know the lies that are transmitted through the evil one and not through those that are dead. So nonetheless, we have this fascination with eternal life. Where does it come from? Well, I think it comes from, first of all, what what Ecclesiastes says, the preacher there notes that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. The fact that you think about eternal life is, is a gift of God. It's something that God has placed in your heart so you will not get content with only this world. He's placed it there so that you will think about life after death and what happens when you die. I think another reason, though, why we are are concerned about eternal things is found in Genesis chapter 127. There it says that God decided, or as he was speaking, he said that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. And you say, well, what does being made in the image of God have anything to do with eternal life? Well, beloved, God is eternal, is he not? God has known no beginning and will know no end. And if we are created in the image of God, then from the moment that we begin existence, there is an eternal quality to us by the fact that we have been created in the image of God. And so it's a natural question for us to ask. A question that considers, what happens when I die? Or what goes on after this life? But then I also said that, that what this man was also wanting to know was who will be saved. And you think, well, where does that come from? Well, I'll get to that. But to be saved is a term that we use in church a lot. And to be saved means that I'm saved from my sin to life. I'm saved from darkness to life. I'm saved from death to life. I said darkness to light. So salvation is a term that we use that God rescues us out of distress. So you say, well, how do you connect salvation with eternal life? Well, Jesus does it for us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And we often stop there, but what does verse 17 say? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So, beloved, to receive eternal life is to be saved. And that's the context, at least, in which this rich ruler is talking about it. And then notice what he says. What must I do to be saved? That is so ingrained into our hearts as well. This is so typical of human thinking. Because we work for what we have. This is, we earn the right to get something. I have something because I have earned it or I have worked from it. From our earliest days as children. We are taught that we get something by doing. We receive things because they are rewards for what we have done. And one of the side problems is that is our doing quickly becomes a point of pride. And the better we do something, the more we deserve something else. And the reason we get something is because I've done everything required in order to get it. What do parents brag about? what their children are doing. They mark the success of their children by what their children do. They're walking at 10 days old. They're now, you know, they're on a sports team by the time they're three weeks old. We, we brag about our kids by what they do. We receive approval from others based upon what we have done. Loved ones, everything about our life is based upon what we do. I have degrees on my wall because what I have done. And so our very human existence is rooted in you get something because you do something. And it's our very sinful fallen nature as well that creates us to, that drives us to think that we get something because we do something. And so it was natural for him to equate eternal life with doing. it has got to be something I have to do so I can have eternal life. What must I do to have eternal life, but Jesus sets the record straight with him. Verse nineteen. The amazing thing is Jesus so often knew what people were thinking. It's because he understood human nature. He knew that words mattered, and he begins by just responding to the the, 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 the rich ruler's first question to him or first statement. Good teacher, why good teacher? Why not just teacher or master or lord? Why good teacher? I think on the, on the surface level, it's just an attempt to flatter. It's, it's his attempt to, to somehow elicit a response because in those days, when you said to some, when you used that kind of a phrasing, you said, good teacher, what he was expecting in a response was, well, noble ruler. So in other words, it was a tit for tat. I'm acknowledging the good in you, you acknowledge the good in me. It was an attempt to flatter Jesus so he would receive a good comment in return. But I think that 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 Jesus understood that he was thinking that, and so he moved in a different direction. And he said to this man, no one is good except God alone. Now, I know people have struggled with that. You can read a bunch of commentaries and see what the struggle is all about in that particular area. But Jesus is beginning to sense in this man that he had his, his, his idea of goodness was all screwed up in his head. And Jesus read him correctly. The ruler was thinking about goodness in righteousness terms, in doing terms, in terms of human thinking. And although Jesus was God, he was also human. And so his response to him was clear. And although Jesus was sinless, this man didn't know that about Jesus yet. And so Jesus was said, listen... From a human perspective, there is no one good. There is nothing you can do as a human being to become good in God's eyes. Only God is morally good. Only God is perfectly righteous. He is light. He is holy. He is the standard of goodness. Human beings don't set that standard. God sets the standard. So to squash any idea that this man might have had, that somehow he could achieve human goodness in himself, Jesus said, listen, there is no human that is good. Only God is good. Then Jesus continued. He said, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. In other words, Jesus was saying to him, keep the commandments. Implying that those who are good, keep the commandments. If you want to be good... And you want to have that sort of adjective before your name, then keep the commandments. Now for you who've been around the church for a while, just bear with me for a couple moments because this is fairly basic stuff. But the Ten Commandments are found in Exodus chapter 20. And the Ten Commandments were God's gift to his redeemed people in order that they might live in a way that was beneficial for them and glorifying to God. God never gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel as a means for them to earn salvation. In fact, if you go back and read Exodus chapter 20, it is prefaced by grace. That God says he has redeemed the people and brought them out of Israel. He had already saved them. He had already chosen them. They were already his people. And now he says, in response to what I have done, here are the Ten Commandments. It's us, loved ones, who have mixed it all up. And we have taken the Ten Commandments and said, those are the way in which we achieve acceptance by God. That's never what God intended for us in the Ten Commandments. Secondly, the Ten Commandments have rightly been divided into two halves. There's the first half, which are the first four commandments, and the second half, which are the last six commandments. The first four deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship with mankind. And that's why when this individual came to Jesus and they said to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in in, in all of the, uh, the Bible? And you remember what Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then he said, and the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Beloved, that is a summary of the Ten Commandments. The first four, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The last six, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Notice, though, that Jesus was only dealing with the second half of the commandments when he talked to this man. This ruler's reply is rather stunning. It's a confident reply. All of these I have kept from my youth. See what he's saying? I'm a good man. I have kept all of these commandments from my youth. Now he's meaning from pre-teens or maybe his bar mitzvah. And I, you know, I I, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I will do this because you need to think about this. There is no such thing as an age of accountability. I do not believe that. There are children that come to faith in Christ at one and two years old. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his womb. Loved ones, there is no point at which it doesn't matter what you do. And sometimes that's what the age of accountability is. Well, I'm not responsible for my sin until I reach the age of accountability. Show it to me in the Bible. I hope some of you on your list of three people have got children. Children need to come to know Jesus. So anyhow, he says to him, all of these I have kept from my youth. Put it other way, if that's all that's required of me, then I'm in good shape. I've done the love your neighbor portion of the law. Strangely, or maybe goodly, that's not a right word, rightly, Jesus doesn't challenge him on this. I would have been all over the guy. Jesus just lets it ride. Doesn't say a thing. In fact, Mark tells us that he looked at him with love. He loved him enough to tell him the truth. Loved him enough, though, to be gentle in his response to the man. You see, we often think of, and this is what I might have said to him, we often think of the Ten Commandments as acts only. And so we would say to ourselves, maybe like this man did, well, I've never actually killed anybody. And, you know, I've never actually committed adultery. I've never committed the act. Some people, and I've even heard a few people say this, I have never lied. (laughs) I've never lied. Some people say they've never stolen because they, they can never actually remember speaking a lie or stealing. But, beloved, keeping the commandments is not just about acts. It's about thought, intent, and motive. Have you ever told somebody the truth with the intent to deceive them? What about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? If any of you hates his brother, he is guilty of murder. Or if anybody has lusted over another man or woman, he has already committed adultery with them in their heart. Beloved, the Ten Commands are not just about acts, they are about thought, intent, And motive. But Jesus knew there was a more basic issue here. So he left that one alone, and he goes to the more basic issue. And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Jesus is saying, let's set aside the second half of the law right now, and let's deal with the first half of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. What he's asking him is, what is your relationship with God? Do you worship God alone? Do you have any idols in your life? See, the fact that Jesus left out any reference to the first four commands and, lo- uh, and loving God made his point immediately. The ruler's problem was that his treasure was something other than God. This this rich man's problem was that you can't serve God and something else equally. That one has to have a priority. And loved ones, don't miss what's going on here. This is really helpful, I think, in our own thinking. I've had lots of people come to me in the course of my life, and we'll just pick a word, and they say to me, Paul, but you know, John's not a Christian, but, but John is a really good person. You know, John John just does all these good deeds and he spends a lot of time in the community. He gives a lot of his money away to help other people. And And you mean to tell me that, that he doesn't have eternal life or that God doesn't look on him with special favor? And sometimes I would say, you know what, that is a good person, you know, from a certain angle. And they have done a lot of good deeds. And sometimes when I compare myself to some of these people who aren't followers of Jesus Christ on their good deeds, I fall short. But this passage is really instructive. Because I think on the first thing, we have to realize it's not just about the act of doing good, but what's the motive and the intent and the thought behind it. Why are they doing the good deeds that they're doing? But more importantly, and this is what Jesus comes back to with this young man, is I've talked to a lot of people who who tell me they're good people, but they don't darken the door of a church in their life. They have no relationship with God. And in fact, they tell me, I don't want anything to do with God. I'm a good person. I don't need God. I don't need him in my life. Well, because they have other idols. They might be a good person, but they're not worshiping God and God alone. And so that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying that we will never really be a good person to our neighbor until we learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul. We will never do good to others until we worship God and God alone. And so he says to this man, sell all that you have, give it away to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And remember, we talked about treasure in heaven when we talked about worry, where the response to worry, remember the radical response of worry was then, if it's going to cause you worry, sell it all and give it away and you'll have treasure in heaven. How do we get treasure in heaven? By helping the less fortunate around us. He says, So sell your possessions, distribute it to the poor, come, follow me. This is where we realize that this man had an Achilles heel, verse 23. And, And I should have kept the tension until here, but I couldn't do it. Because here's the reason, when he heard these things, he became very sad. Because he was extremely rich. Matthew puts it this way, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Mark puts it this way. And this man's face fell. He went away sad. Because he had great wealth. You see, he wanted eternal life. He wanted to be saved. But the price was too great. He walked away. He said no to the demands of God. And yes, to the lusts of his own heart. He couldn't come to God on God's terms. You see, what he is now saying is, 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 is that Jesus, you're not even good enough for me now. He, 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 he I'm not going to put my allegiance in, in you anymore. If that's the standard, I don't want to be your follower. He had functioning ears, but he had a deaf heart. You see, loved ones, the issue is thought, is not that God requires all of us to sell everything that we own and give it away and follow him. Because that would be another work, right? How do I, what must I do to receive eternal life? Sell everything, give it away and follow me. That's a work. So Jesus is not just saying, well, do another work and you'll be saved. But what Jesus is doing is he's putting his finger on a point and he says, your focus of worship is something other than God. And beloved, that's what is required of all of us at some point when we respond to Christ is we've got to be willing to give up what is most important to us, what we worship, what we serve, and say, I will worship God and God alone. It's a huge price to pay. And there are some people who are unwilling to pay that price. He walked away. It's the impossibility then of salvation by works. Remember, we're still dealing with this question, what must I do to enter the, enter the kingdom of heaven? So we're getting a little bit closer to the point. Um, Jesus then responds to the disciples, and I, I think as this man is walking away, he turns to his disciples, and he says this, which is absolutely stunning, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then now he says it's impossible, because he says for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying, it's impossible. It's difficult for a, a, a rich person to enter heaven. And then he gets this comparison. A camel, it's the largest animal in Palestine. A needle is the most commonly used item day to day in a household. So they would have been absolutely familiar. And they would have known right away, this is ridiculous. Of course, it's impossible. You can't get a camel to walk through an eye of a needle. It's impossible. If that's the case, then the disciples' response is rather stunning. Then who can be saved? It took me a while to kind of figure this out in my head. How did they make the jump from rich people can't enter heaven to then who? I think they, they made it this way. Rich people in that culture and in that society were like the top of the top of the top. Rich people were the ones that they were able to build synagogues and endow orphanages, offer alms to the poor. They could refurbish temples. They could fund many other worthwhile efforts. If anyone could be saved, surely a rich person can be saved. If anyone does enough stuff to be saved, surely rich people can be saved. Well, what about the rest of us poor guys who can't even hold a candle to what the rich do? If the rich can't be saved, Then, what hope do the rest of us have? In other words, they are rightly recognizing that there is not a human being alive that can do anything to be saved. It's an impossibility. But there's great hope. Because Jesus right away then says, What is impossible with man? What's impossible? It's impossible to do anything to inherit eternal life. What is impossible with man is possible with God. See, loved ones, what he's asking us to do, and any who have followed Christ, this is what we have come to the conclusion we had to do, and we're still in the process of doing it. And if you're considering Christ, you'll have to do this at some point in order to be saved. We need to be brought to a point of despair we need to realize that I can't do anything to inherit eternal life. It's not based on how much I give away. It's not based on how good I am. It's not based on how often I attended church. It's not based on the fact that I have godly mother and father or grandparents. It's not based on anything that I can do. We need to come to the end of ourselves. We need to realize that our sin has alienated us from God. We need to understand that we are spiritually dead. We need to realize that the anger of God is upon us because of our sins. And now we are eternally in danger of being separated from God. You see, loved ones, the law exposes our sinfulness. We, we we sin when we lie or when we murder or when we commit adultery, when we worship anything other than God. And our sin demonstrates to us that we have ignored God, that we have rebelled against God, that we have fallen short of all God has asked us to do. And at some point, it's the weight of that that brings us to the conclusion that I'm really in trouble. What, what can I do to pay the debt that I owe? What can I do to to God to say, okay, God, I've done this, so now you can just wipe away my slate? What is it that I can do that erases that stain from my life? You see, until we come to the end of ourselves, we will continue to think that there is something we can do to inherit eternal life. And if we come to the point where we won't recognize that impossibility then we will walk away because the price is too high. But Jesus says, what is impossible for you is possible for God. This is amazing stuff. This is the heart of the gospel. Because what I am unable to do for myself, God has done for me. I can't save myself. But beloved, the gospel is, that's right. You can't achieve it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't inherit it. You receive it as a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the grand story of the Bible, that God has entered into our world. We're going to be celebrating this in a month and a half or so. This is what Christmas is about. It's about God coming into our world. Emmanuel, the choir sung about. God with us. It's about the fact that God came into this world. He lived the life that you and I could never live. He lived a perfect life of sinlessness. He obeyed the law completely. He did everything that God asked him to do. And so that that, that he stood... Before God, righteous. God entered into the world through Jesus Christ in order to make possible the impossible. Because it's through the person of Jesus Christ and his righteous life and his sacrificial substitutionary death, in the fact that Jesus died in our place, that we enter into eternal life. I had a partial conversation this week, and people really struggle with this stuff. I had two conversations this week, actually, about salvation. Why did Jesus have to be God? Why couldn't he just be like the rest of us? He had to be sinless. He had to be without sin in order to pay our penalty and our sacrifice. God did what was unthinkable. He took all of our stuff, our sins, our short our shortcomings, and he took them and he put them on his son, Jesus Christ. And then he took his son and he allowed him to be nailed to a cross. And as he was dying, God punished him for your sins and mine. So Jesus lived perfectly, but he gave his life for me. Jesus lived perfectly, but he took the wrath of God that was justly deserved for me upon himself. And so our sin problem has been dealt with. It's already been done. Christ has done it all. God knew that it was impossible for us to ever do what he requires for eternal life. And so he provided the way through his son, Jesus Christ. And then God says, if you will believe that Jesus died in your place, that Jesus was a substitution for you, and he says, I will take the perfection of my son, the goodness of my son, And I will place it upon you. And I will see you as good. I will see you as having fulfilled all that I have required you to do. It's a stunning transaction. But what is impossible for us is possible with God. And you see, this text even itself tells us that this is not just theory, that it's real. Because right away then Peter says to him, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who have left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the life to come. Peter and the disciples had experienced the impossible. They knew what it was to leave everything and put God first. They had left their jobs, they had left their family, they had left their homes, and they had followed Christ. They had done what Jesus had asked the rich young ruler to do, and he couldn't do, they did. And Jesus' response to them is such a beautiful response, because he says, you know what? He says, whatever the cost might have been, I will make up for that. I will make up for it not only in this life, but in the life to come. See, we always think of salvation, or we start by thinking of salvation of what it is I lose. Beloved, we need to look at salvation from what it is do I gain. And Jesus says to them, you will gain so much now and life evermore. You see, it was hidden from the disciples and how this became reality. He says he took the twelve aside and he said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, insulted, spit upon. They will flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. Beloved, that is Easter. Talked about Christmas. This is Easter. How is the impossible possible? Because Christ was flogged, beaten, and killed but God accepted his sacrifice and raised him on the third day. The disciples got it a little bit later. Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounding, you have been healed. Paul in Colossians put it this way, when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive and he forgave all of your trespasses. He erased the certificate of death with all its obligations, with all its must-do list. He erased it all. All that was against us and opposed to us, having taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. God made the impossible possible by putting our stuff on Jesus and nailing it to the cross. One of the most fascinating pieces of modern art ever produced is by William Holman Hunt. It's entitled, The Light of This World. And it shows a figure of Jesus preparing to knock on a, on a door that's overgrown and seemingly long unopened. And it's meant to symbolize the human heart. The scripture that the painting was inspired by was the one in Revelations where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in and sup with that one and that one with me. It said that when Hunt finished painting that particular piece of work, he displayed it for the critics to look at. As this masterful artist had put his work on display, he stepped back and awaited the evaluation. As if struck in the face, the artist grimaced as one of the critics began to laugh loudly. The critic then began to whisper to all those around and finally came back to Hunt and said this, You have made an obvious but grave mistake. It seems that someone of your intelligence would have remembered to put a knob on the door. I can't believe that you would forget it. It's there, Hunt replied. You are not able to see the doorknob, for it's on the inside of the door. Today, if you look at this copy of this great painting, there is still no knob on the outside of the door. See, when Jesus enters into your life, you have to welcome him. He doesn't force his way into any of our hearts. The choice is yours. Christ stands outside of the door of your heart and knocks, waiting, waiting, waiting for you to open your life and receive him. Will you open the door of your heart this morning.